Welcome to the Big Unlock Podcast, where we discuss digital transformation and emerging technologies in healthcare. Here, some of the most innovative thinkers and leaders in healthcare and technology talk about how they are driving change in their organizations. Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to my podcast. This is Patty, and it is my great privilege and honor to introduce my special guest today, Daniel Barchi, CIO of the New York Presbyterian Hospitals. Daniel, thank you for joining us, and welcome to the show. Great. Thank you for having me, Patty. You're welcome. You're welcome. So, Daniel, I was at your presentation recently at the Chime Fall Forum, and your presentation was titled Digital Medicine is just medicine. And we know that healthcare is in early stages of a digital transformation. So maybe you could start by giving us an assessment of the current state of digital transformation in the healthcare sector. Sure. Well, I thank you. First of all, I think I'd start by saying digital medicine is just medicine in the same way that really good technology is not about technology. It blends into the fabric of what we do in our everyday lives. So at one point, I'm sure it was novel that somebody owned an automobile, and today we don't think about owning or using an automobile. I was reading the book Thinking Machines recently about the birth and growth of artificial intelligence, and uh, it pointed out the fact that uh, the first supercomputers were huge and they filled rooms, and uh, now they're small and on our wrists, and we just don't think about technology. And in the same way, technology in healthcare is really important. Quite frankly, if we're eating up physician or nurse time dealing with technology, then technology is not doing what he or she needs. Uh, the technology that's important for medicine, called digital medicine, is that which blends seamlessly into what we do daily in taking care of our patients. And so it's my goal and that of my team to certainly being on the cutting edge of what technology can offer. But uh, it's not an end to itself. It just blends into our larger focus on delivering outstanding patient care. Right. And I recall you had uh, mentioned something along the lines of technologies, 80% people, 15% process, and 5% technology. Did I get that right? That's true. Although, you know, I've been using this quote for years, and it was originally coined by my colleague, Mark Probst, CIO of Intermountain. And I use it all the time because it's absolutely true. I'll repeat it again. Technology is, healthcare technology is 80% people, 15% process, and only 5% technology. Day in and day out, people who are leading technology transformation in healthcare are not focused on Python programming or SAML or interfaces or Fire. What we're focused on is how does this work for the end user? What do they need? Do they need two of them or can we get down to one of them? Can we cut down the time that they spend digging around in these systems by making it more ubiquitous? It's all about the people on the process side, not the technology side. Right. You know, my firm's research suggests that uh, health systems are driving a lot of digital transformation initiatives. However, there seem to be a portfolio of standalone projects and uh, for the most part, if I look at the health system landscape as a whole, most health systems are relying primarily on their electronic health record platforms for driving digital initiatives. 
Is this uh, consistent with what you're seeing in the market? And maybe you can talk a little bit about how you know, you're approaching it at uh, NYP. You make a very good point. Um, we always strive to adopt technology, which is going to be cutting edge and is going to help our physicians. At the same time, we want to make sure that it's not getting in their way. And so there's a push-pull, the push being that uh, we want to embrace small companies that are coming up with new ideas, and then the pull being, yes, but we want to make sure it's part of the overall fabric of what we're doing. And so it's a fine balance between being on the bleeding edge of what's happening and being on the trailing edge of what's happening. So we like to think that in New York Presbyterian, we're thinking about that balance from the physician and nurse point of view all of the time. We're really focused on our core electronic medical record. And let's be honest, that's where our uh, clinicians spend the bulk of their day. And we want everything to be accessible through the electronic medical record. We don't want to say, sure, you do your core data and your core documentation and ordering in the electronic medical record. But when you want to use a cool decision support tool, log out and log into this other system. Or when you want to use the latest PACS system, log out of the EMR and log into this other system. And so, you know, the great technology that comes in startups that are being innovative is generally years away from being well integrated into the core EMR. So we need to think about where we can embrace the best of what's cutting edge and coming from small companies, small startups, small standalone tools versus what we can incorporate in the larger EMR. And there's probably a threshold, you know, something that is a 100% great idea, standalone application versus 70% as good using the functionality of the EMR. Probably the 70% embedded in the EMR beats the 100% standalone because of the ease of working and for the idea that everything that's done in the core system is interfaced with everybody else. So it benefits not only the clinician who's using that tool, be it the outside tool or the inside tool, but the inside tool is integrated in the seamless care of patients end to end. Yeah, and this is uh, very consistent with what I hear from other CIOs as well, this constant trade-off between what might be the absolute best in class on the one hand, but also what is more practical and optimal for the here and now. And you, you made a couple of very good points about the importance of not adding to the physician burden, which was kind of your underlying message about using the electronic medical record as a landing page or a landing point for physicians to use some of the advanced functionalities. Let's talk about the front end a little bit. You know, there's a lot of talk about digital front doors today and primarily relating to patient access. And a lot of health systems have launched some very intuitive apps, including New York Presbyterian. And uh, there's also non-traditional players like Walgreens getting into the space. What are your thoughts on how these digital front doors are reshaping the patient experience? And maybe you can share some uh, thoughts from your own experience with the apps that you've launched at New York Presbyterian. Great. Thanks for bringing this up. Just to use an example, going back 20 years or more, uh, we can think about a lot of this in the way that airlines did about booking and ticketing systems. In that 20 years ago, it was all about how the consumer, the traveler, gets in contact with the airline to start the process and make things happen. 
And today it's all about putting the perfect app in travelers' hands and letting them make the reservations, do the special requests, and, and drive the process. We can think about the healthcare industry being on the early phases of doing this, where certainly the clinical care is delivered by doctors and nurses in physician practices or in the hospital. But the coordination of it more and more is getting into the patient hands. And the only way you can allow them to do this, if you give them access to the fundamental operating systems, primarily through a portal. You know, we're going through the process of implementing a single common EMR across all 10 of our hospitals, as well as Columbia Doctors and Wild Cornell Medicine, which is simply a huge endeavor. And as we think about this core EMR that we're implementing, you know, there will probably be about 45 to 50,000 clinical and financial and operational users on a daily basis. But what we realized at one point is, you know, there are probably going to be 150,000 patients that use the system every day through the portal. So it's great that we're doing it for physician efficiency and for operations in the hospital, but it has to be a really good tool as a portal for the patients to use it and get the data themselves. And then I tie this back to my comment about standalones. Sure, it's great if you've got a perfect fertility app or motherhood app or depression screening app. And it's great that specialized standalone tool can go deep. But I think the best applications that face patients are the ones that go deep, but they're also broad. They tie into the larger environment of care, including legacy records, including prescriptions and allergies, and the ability to schedule follow-up appointments. Yeah, yeah. And uh, can you talk to any metrics around how do you track the effectiveness of how these apps are actually reshaping the patient experience or impacting your own inflows, if you will? What kind of metrics do you track for telling whether it's successful or not? Yeah, well, I'd start by saying that I think that healthcare is generally still very new into this. Even core EMRs that have very good patient portals it is the few and far between health systems that have really made great inroads in getting their patients to use them. And even when the functionality exists, getting the physicians and physician practices to use them and saying, you know, we probably don't need Daniel at the front desk answering phones and making every single appointment for Dr. Jones. Maybe we should open up Dr. Jones's schedule. And I know that Dr. Jones is reluctant and that she really likes control over her schedule and understanding exactly what patients are getting scheduled when. But wouldn't it be more efficient if we either had the front desk staff answering questions and doing follow-up and not just making appointments and putting this capability in the hands of the end user? So I'd say that we as an industry are very, very new to this. And I think in many cases, we're testing the waters. In terms of uh, effectiveness, most health systems, including us, are just measuring the percentage of our patients that are even signed up on the portal, never mind using it. It's a very th low threshold. So what percentage of our active patients are using the portal today? The next step is going to get into, instead of process metrics like simply signing up, but outcome metrics. So we have more than 9 million inbound phone calls to our health system annually. How do we reduce that over time by making a lot of what patients do online self-service? And we're starting to adopt some artificial intelligence and putting it on the front end of our phone calls so that we can answer basic questions about scheduling or 
visiting our time or directions, just very, very basic things, to at least cull off those basic things that can be best answered automatically for a patient so that people who are answering calls are better suited to answering more deeply the kind of questions that our patients raise. I'll come back to AI in a moment, but you mentioned healthcare outcomes in general. And of course, in the current era that we are in, it's all about data. It's about harnessing data for insights, and it's the the number of data sources is increasing, the types of data is increasing. However, my understanding is that aggregating and analyzing the data in a healthcare context has been a challenge and remains a challenge despite some progress due to data quality, data silos, interoperability issues, and so on. So can you share your experience at New York Presbyterian on how you've approached this in your world? You raise a very good point. Data is certainly an outstanding tool to be able to improve our operations financially from an efficiency point of view and from a clinical point of view. I often think that when people say it's hard to get data out of systems, be them financial systems or billing systems or clinical systems, whether in healthcare or anywhere else, it's sort of lazy secondhand for acknowledging that this work is challenging. Doesn't mean it's impossible, but nothing's easy. If you were to say, you know, organizing all the photos that my family has taken from all of our vacations and celebrations over the past 10 years, yeah, that's difficult. It's not impossible. You need to do the work. I feel in the same way, aggregating and analyzing data is difficult, but not impossible. And where uh, members of our research teams at Columbia and New York Presbyterian and Weill Cornell have wanted to, they've gotten access to the data and been able to drill down and make real conclusions about efficiency or about clinical outcomes. And I think that it's never going to be easily done until we get to national standards for how we record data in more discrete fields. We are always going to have issues of unstructured data, physician notes, and the quality of the data. And the quality of the data that comes from clinical care is never going to meet the standard that researchers want. And it's our job as technology people who work in healthcare to tie the two together. But I'd wrap up again by making the point that just because it is challenging work doesn't mean that it is impossible to do. And we should spend more time actually drilling down into what conclusions do we want to draw? What data sets do we need to get that information from? And how do we go about taking the eight steps that are necessary to do it than simply saying, yeah, it's hard to get the data out of the system. So uh, can you share a little bit of uh, detail on what your data integration, data aggregation, and data management infrastructure looks like at New York Presbyterian? Sure. We're doing a lot of good work uh, led by our analytics leaders and informatics departments at Columbia, Weill, Cornell, and NYP to do two things. Not only look at the data that we have on hand, but we're planning the future. Because we are three institutions, two top 10 Ivy League medical schools and a top 10 health system, all working in concert, we have many, many different sources of data and teams using that data. And yet we've done a really nice job of having the leaders of these data sets and our analytics teams create shared governance. And in that way, we've been able to tie the shared governance to our new integrated electronic medical record 
and we're looking for outcomes together. So the analytics leaders from Columbia, Weill, Cornell, and New York Presbyterian meet now twice weekly to look at data requests, figure out how best to meet those needs, and then uh, to share the data that they need. We're also planning longer term how we integrate data into a data lake and do a shared database so that we aggregate not only clinical data from the EMR, but all of the different research that's going on into one pool. So it's not a, going back to our comment before about 80% people, 15% process, and 5% technology. It's not a technology challenge, um, aggregating data or deciding where to store it. It's about who has access to it and how do we make that access necessary, available to the researchers and the clinicians who need it at any moment. Yeah. Now, let's come back to AI, which you brought up a little while ago. We are seeing significant advances in AI and machine learning tools, and it's being applied in the healthcare context in a wide variety of ways, both on the clinical side as well as on the administrative side of the business. However, the sense I get uh, is that for a vast majority of health systems, analytics is mostly still about retrospective analytics, and AI is still in its early stages. And those enterprises that are making progress with AI are challenged with, you know, what kind of use cases are the right ones? How do you ensure transparency in the machine learning models, algorithmic bias, you know, ethical issues, and so on and so forth? What are your thoughts on the current state of AI, and uh, how are you deploying AI at New York Presbyterian? Well, first of all, Patty, I really appreciate you raising the issues of algorithmic bias and the quality of the data, the black box problem, and ethical use of AI, because as we think about using advanced technology with patient data, we have to be very, very thoughtful, careful, and respectful of the ways technology interacts with our patients. This is people's health. These are people's lives that are at stake, and so we can't be cavalier with it in any way. And so even at the most senior levels, led by our CEO and the two deans, we talk about those challenges, and we are very careful about what we do. So that said, we do know that AI can help us do a better job of delivering care and be more thoughtful about how we're using data. Although if you've seen me speak publicly, Patty, you know I tend to talk about the fact that we're still in the gold rush phase of artificial intelligence in healthcare, where if you think back to the gold rush of 1849, the people who made the money were not the miners uh, who were using the picks and shovels to dig gold out of the hillsides. It was the people selling them the picks and shovels, people like uh, Leland Stanford, who accumulated money and was able to underwrite Stanford University, or Levi Strauss, who was selling clothing and blue jeans to those miners. And so I feel like at this point with artificial intelligence, the gold is not the clinical side of it, equate the physicians and nurses to the miners. The gold right now is on the back office side of it, the people who are creating the environment, the finance people, the IT people, the HR people, people who are running these large systems. And so it's much easier to apply artificial intelligence to a billing system to make predictions about which bills will or will not be approved by a payer or to use AI to look at documentation by a physician and see if it's going to pass muster or use artificial intelligence to do the 
basic robotic process automation work of reaching out to an insurance company and looking up information online and aggregating that data so that somebody else saves hours of time by doing all that finger keyboard work and can more thoughtfully think about it. So at New York Presbyterian, we are using AI in clinical ways, which I'd be happy to describe in a minute. But a lot of our focus is the recognition that it's much easier. We have much more constrained data sets, meaning discrete data in fields that you can use to feed AI systems on the finance and the IT sides of the house. Yeah, I love the analogy of the gold miners and the people selling picks and shovels because, you know, unglamorous as it might sound, the people selling the picks and shovels are actually making money more consistently than were the people who were going after the shiny objects. And, you know, so I just love that analogy, Daniel. And thank you for, for sharing that. And I have seen some of your presentations where you talk about the uh, the robotic uh, machine that uh, carries the food between floors and uh, releases the people in the kitchens to focus more on the food preparation. It doesn't sound like the sort of thing that you would expect a hospital to be focusing on from an artificial intelligence standpoint. But that, to my mind, illustrates where the gold actually lies in today's context. Would you sort of agree with that? I would agree. If you think about the fact that uh, healthcare is a very labor-intense business because we rely on the clinical skills and compassion of our physicians and nurses, the question is, how do we give them more time to do their work and how much of all of the other administrivia can we take off of their plates? So the example that you just gave of the autonomous robots that we run in one of our large academic medical centers from the kitchen in the basement, down the halls, the robots automatically call the elevator and take the food trays directly up to the right floors and deliver it to the right area so a person can deliver it the last 20 feet to the patient's room. That's an example of technology doing the basic work so that the people who are actually delivering the compassionate care, in this case, our food service workers, have more time to deliver each meal personally to our patient, ask them how they're feeling, uh, get a sense of whether the meals are meeting their needs, and focus on those uh, individualized patient needs. So I feel like more and more AI will bleed into care, but for right now, the big opportunity is taking tasks off of physicians, nurses, finance people, IT people, and other support services that otherwise get in the way of the way we deliver that care. Yeah, that's a fascinating example to me. In the remaining few minutes that we have, I want to walk through a few other topics really quickly with you. We do something called a lightning round where I ask for your top-of-the-mind thoughts on some emerging technologies. Let's get right into it. Uh, let's start with this one, uh, cloud computing. Yeah, I think cloud computing is important. 10, 15 years ago, every health system was very proud to talk about its data center and the investments it was making. And now we think, you know, do we really even want to own data centers? How can we get out of the data center business? Our skill set in healthcare is delivering outstanding care and making people's lives better, not in running large facilities with HVAC and other fire suppression systems. So I would like to put more and more of what we do into the hands of third-party companies that do it really well. When we have to store data in its own state, I would be happy to do that using a large cloud computing system. 
The challenge is most large academic medical centers, in fact, healthcare generally, is a relatively thin margin business in the not-for-profit side. So everything that we do has a cost component to it. And it's relatively cheap to own a data center and keep servers in there in every two to four years, as is appropriate, replace a $5,000, $10,000 server, which is a capital cost. It's much more expensive to pay a third-party company, an AWS or a Microsoft, to store and manage that data for me as an operating cost uh, year over year. So one of the challenges that many of my colleagues and I across the nation are finding is that we'd like to move to more and more cloud, but cloud tends to be expensive operationally. I think that there are advantages from a security and a reliability and a backup point of view, but we do face the challenge of the cost. Okay, next one on the list, uh, voice recognition and uh, natural language processing. I think that 20 years from now, we're going to look back on the state of healthcare and quite frankly, the state of technology in the United States and think, can you believe that the interface between somebody's brain and the computer was their eyes and their fingers and that we made people type into things? I think it's going to get replaced over time by certainly voice and then other ways for people to ubiquitously transfer their ideas and thoughts into our systems. And so voice recognition is the easiest way to get quickly to the next step. We're starting to make investments in small companies that are doing voice recognition. We're exploring artificial intelligence and voice recognition, listening to the conversations between physicians and patients with the patient's consent so that uh, the doctor can focus on the patient and the computer listens and documents what the physician says in terms of the current situation of the patient and what orders he or she needs to be placing. And so I think voice recognition is going to get very important very quickly. One of my previous guests, David Cork, uh, CIO of Innova Health System, he said in mm -hmm. another 15 years from now, we're going to be in keyboardless environments. Do you think that's something that uh, we're heading towards? Absolutely. I think there's going to be most much more optical character-driven uh, management of our technology and a lot more voice recognition. You start to see it, although the auto industry from its interfaces tends to be about five to seven years behind, you can see the auto industry trying to free people from being uh, having to touch anything and do more voice recognition. And I see that happening in healthcare as well. Okay, automation and uh, RPA. I think you made a reference to RPA, but uh, what do you think of those two? Yeah, RPA, especially on the back office side, especially on our finance side, you know, we employ hundreds of really talented people on our finance teams who do repetitive tasks. We would rather have those people drilling down deep into solving problems, both for our health system and for our patients on a billing point of view, instead of doing the repetitive tasks they do today. So we employ many bots and we're expanding our fleet of bots to make us more efficient on the back office robotic process automation side so we can get more customer focus. And I think that'll increase not only here near Presbyterian, but it's happening across healthcare and it's happening in all industries as well. That's correct. That's correct. Uh, last one in the lightning round, 5G networks. I think right now 5G is, is really high on the hype cycle and really low on what it's going to deliver. If you think about what we're able to do both on the consumer side and on the business side using uh, wireless today, it is quite incredible. And in many cases, we're still operating in the 3G, early stage 4G. 
I think that 5G is being touted as something that is remarkable and going to change what we do. But if you really drill into the examples that people give about being able to do robotic surgery from across the world, well, sure, that's possible with 5G, but it's possible in a wireless or even a wired environment today. In many cases, being able to do something wirelessly is good, but not a crucial must-have. And if you think about it, every one of our ORs has, you know, is wired for everything that we need. And the ability just simply for something to be an air gap in the data transfer is no real advantage. And in many cases, we're not limited by speed either. One of the consumer things touted by 5G companies is imagine being able to download a two-hour movie right before you get onto a plane. That's not how people watch movies anymore. You know, they don't download movies onto their devices. They stream them in many different ways, including 20,000 feet on an airline. So I think that 5G right now is an outstanding technology looking for uh, the kind of problems it's going to solve. And I'll, I'll add one more thing. I don't think we're spending enough time talking about the downsides of 5G. So at the higher frequencies of 5G, the blanketing of cities that we're going to need with higher frequency, shorter range antennas is not something we're spending enough time thinking about. So essentially on every light pole in every city, we're going to have to have a 5G antenna. Uh, 5G is touted to solve some of our rural wireless problems when, in fact, 5G doesn't have the the range that uh, some older systems have. And so I think that's misleading. And if you think about hospitals, they tend to be older buildings that might be 20, 60, even 100 years old with thick walls, with uh, lead-lined areas for imaging. And 5G doesn't have the penetration that some other systems do. And so we're going to have to have repeaters in just about every space or room. So these are the challenges that I think we need to face and that we're not talking enough about as everybody tells the benefits of 5G. Yeah, early days, yeah. You had mentioned something about startups and working with startups early on in the conversation, and I have to ask, because we are now seeing a lot of venture capital money pouring into literally hundreds and hundreds of digital health startups, uh, many of whom have very promising solutions and are making great progress, uh, others that are not. But from the point of view of you know the CIO of a large health system looking to harness innovation how do you go about really managing the risk? And how are you doing it at New York Presbyterian? And what's the advice you have for digital health innovators who want to be a part of your journey? So the way that we manage the risk is that we are clinically driven, not technology or financial driven. So we go to our chairs of medicine, chairs of surgery, other clinical leaders and ask them, what do they need? And ultimately, they're the ones who say, here's a promising technology or this small startup fills a gap that we don't otherwise have. So we don't find technology and search for problems to solve. We go to the clinicians to ask them what problems they have and then try to find things that meet their needs. And then once we find them, uh, we do a lot of due diligence before we enter something into our health system. We have a program management office that looks at things from a financial, from a risk, from a technology, from a patient privacy, even from an algorithmic bias point of view before we embrace technology. So that's from our side of the house. If I was on the startup side, I would get deeply embedded with clinical partners who know today's problems. 
unfortunately, there's a lot of money and a lot of brilliant ideas in small companies that are working in a healthcare space. But if they don't have clinical insights, then they can be creating the world's greatest X, whatever X is, and not recognize that a physician would look at that and she would say, that's not what I do. Or, that's not my problem. It's a great idea, but it's not going to work in, in my practice. So thinking about things purely from a clinical point of view first, would physicians use it? Would it make clinical care better? And then everything else to follow is really important mindset for a small startup or a venture capital or a private equity company to have. Yeah, that's very insightful. Thank you for that. We're in 2020, and uh, would you care to share what your top priorities are for the coming year? So just like over the past couple of years, my top priority is reliability and integration. So it's my responsibility and that of our team to create new technologies and solutions, but for our clinical end users, the doctors and the nurses that deliver the care, they want to see things integrated in a holistic, easy-to-use package. And so while we're constantly advancing the care that uh, we're delivering with great technology, it has to be part of a seamless environment. So undoing, and this is not just unique to our health system, but all health systems across the country, undoing 20-plus years of worst of breed and tying it together in easy-to-use integrated packages is our challenge. And it's incumbent upon IT leaders to think about end users and how they seamlessly use technology in the environment that they're in. And that's all going to be our focus for 2020. Daniel, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to share your thoughts with us. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you. And I wish uh, you and your team all the very best uh, for the coming year. Thanks for having me, Patty. I enjoyed it. And I appreciate what you do with the podcast. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Subscribe to our podcast series at www.thebigunlock.com and write to us at info at thebigunlock.com.